So a lot of people who thought they were going to buy when the market got hot and it continues to be hot today, and now you have a, you know all these demands on the supply chain that are you know cost of woods going up. You look at yourself and you go, I'm going to rent. And if I'm going to rent, I'm going to rent a nicer place because I should be a home buyer. And there's almost like this psychological thing going yep. on where it's helping to facilitate this increase in rental prices. If you have a newly renovated property, a property that's been well or nicely upgraded right now, you can rent that thing out for a significantly more money than you could just a year ago. And I know the economists freak out because I use words like inflation, but it's a real thing. Hi, welcome to Ready to Scale Season 3. I'm your host, Ellie Perlman. I'm a real estate investor, syndicator, and operator of multifamily properties. And in this season, we're going to focus on dialogues that drive success. Building real wealth is not a fairy tale nor rocket science, but there's so much to learn. So grab a cup of coffee and join me each week for in-depth conversations with successful real estate investors. Conversations that are designed to help you drive your wealth, investment, knowledge, and lifestyle to the next level. And of course, you can always go to my website, elliperlman.com, to read more about investing passively in multifamily. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host, broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. It's actually a beautiful day today, so I consider myself to be very lucky. All the things I took for granted back when I was living in Los Angeles. Today, I'm speaking with Chris Nagibi. So Chris is the chief credit officer of First Foundation. He's also the CEO of Black Crown Realty and Black Crown Law. He's a licensed attorney. He's a real estate broker and a general contractor. So Chris has over 20 years of experience and he has accrued over 20 billion in closed transactions. And he has a Juris Doctorate from Trinity Law School and he's a graduate of Yale School of Management Global Executive Leadership Program. The interesting thing about Chris, and we had a little bit of a conversation before we started recording is that he provides pro bono legal work for families in need and has worked with Habitat for Humanity to create unique loan programs helping to get families into homes in Hawaii, Las Vegas, California, and other places. So I'm really excited to have Chris on the show today. Hey, Chris. Hey, good morning. Thank you for the introduction. That was lovely. Absolutely. And you're Recording this from Orange County, and I cannot say that I'm not jealous because you know everyone knows how much I love California. Yeah, it is all the things you missed about being home. It is that outside right now. I'm not going to rub it in too much, but it's going to mm. be a spectacular day today. Uh, I know, like every other day. That's one of the greatest, you know, one of the best things about California the amazing weather. Let's dive into it. I want to start with talking a little bit about the assets that you invest in. But before we do that, can you tell me a little bit about your path and how you got started, how you found yourself in real estate? Yeah. You know, growing up as a kid, my father had a mortgage brokerage shop and he was a mortgage provider, a lender. And I always, you know, kind of saw what he was going through. That was during the, I would say the mid late eighties where I really started to understand and appreciate the business. And that was also kind of the peak time for the mortgage business. It was wall street had their boiler room environments and, you know, California and the West coast really had this mortgage lending operation. And these guys wore suits and they were power brokers of the, mm-hmm. of the, of the era. And 
it really kind of started off as childhood infatuation with learning more about the business and understanding how these guys, you know, appeared to be so successful. And as I got older, it was just learning more and more about different sides of the business. At some point, my father only knew about single family residence, you know, business. And I wanted to know about multifamily and commercial. And, and then I wanted to learn about the law and, you know, all those things kind of coalesced. And then I wanted to learn how to build properties and how that actually worked. And, you know, how is it supposed to be done? Especially if you're buying them, you got to know, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it's just been a lifelong pursuit. I still try to learn. I still take courses. You'll still find me popping into classes here and there, either at a local community college or even maybe a contractor's course or something like that, just because, you know, the journey is learning. And I think that over time, I've tried to learn as much as I can about each part of the business, but you never know everything. Yeah, I love your desire to keep educating yourself and become smarter and better. I We definitely share that. And, you know, I'm I have three degrees and I love to learn. I love to be more, you know, more and more educated. I feel that it adds so much depth into not only what you're doing specifically, but just in general, when you have multiple areas of education, you sometimes make connections that people usually people don't do from one subject to another that is not really straightforward. Well, let's talk a little bit about assets because you mentioned that, you know, you're you're investing in multifamily, in commercial and single family homes, and they're all kind of the same, but also very different. Which asset class has been most resilient during COVID in your portfolio? Wow, such a powerful question. You know, I would say that they've all been surprisingly resilient despite all the fanfare in the, in the news and the media. But if I had to pick one, definitely the multifamily. And that's just because the diversification of risk as it relates to having multiple tenants in a property is just wider, right? You don't have one person leaving you with no income. You've got, you know, a 10 or 15 unit apartment complex. Well, if one or two people can't pay or they slow pay, which is more common in the market during the pandemic, you know, you were still fine. And if you have a properly cash flowing building, you can take one or two people moving out or not paying and still cash flow, at least to break even if not better in, in most cases. So Multifamily by far and away was the highest and best product. I think the outlier in, in, during the pandemic. And one additional note that I'll add is that not only you know was it a special property type for me historically, I've always loved multifamily, but it really proved out the underlying theory in multifamily that I think a lot of multifamily investors have is that people have this natural tendency to want to protect where they live, right? Economic times get tough. You still need a place to live. So you generally see a resilience in that category that I haven't seen statistically anywhere else. Absolutely. And I can share a quick story with you, Chris. When we became aware of COVID around March of 2020, we all knew that, yeah, people need a place to stay, but we were not sure. We were unsure when it came to the direct impact. We thought maybe people would want to stay, but they wouldn't be able to pay or wouldn't want to pay their rent because people, yeah, they always need a place to stay, but then the eviction moratorium became a thing. And then there was some risk, some amount of risk there when it wasn't clear what's going to happen. Yes, they're still going to have a roof above their head, but they're not going to be, they wouldn't have to pay rent. And so there was a time with a lot of uncertainty. And by the end of the day, we saw that you know, portfolio was performing well and our doom and gloom projections or fears did not materialize, which was great. Did you go through a similar kind of thinking process or how did you perceive that quote unquote threat back in early COVID days? 
I mean, let, let's be real about something. Let's be frank. Okay. You know, as a real estate investor, plus a guy who manages a multi-billion dollar portfolio of multifamily real estate, we are the second largest multifamily lender in the state of California. And I'll tell you, you know, being in that position, these things were all very scary. You have unprecedented economic times leading into a pandemic, which is equally as unprecedented. Then you have a CDC-led eviction moratorium. Is that constitutional? Is it a takings clause under the, you know, the, the uh, takings clause violation or due process clause violation under the, under the constitution? Well, according to Texas and Arkansas, the answer is yes, but there's still more litigation, I'm sure there. But what I will say is, yeah, we, we freaked out. You know, how is this going to affect our property type? We had Moody's, you know, we had CoStar, we had all this data and input sources. We have a multi-billion dollar portfolio and we do asset quality reviews all the time, not to mention my own portfolio, trying to make sure that people are paying. And one of the things that we found very early on was that while collections were definitely down as of the first of the month, when generally most people's you know, rent was due, they were actually paying. So while you had a 70 to 75% collection on average in the beginning of the month, through the month, you had an over 90% collection rate in multifamily. And then we start looking at it in a broader scope and you see one month and two months and three months of this 90 plus you know, percent collection rate, you start to have a little bit more confidence in the fact that your underlying assumptions in an unprecedented economic environment are still okay. That's not to say that there aren't people who didn't have eviction yeah. you know, issues and, and there's definitely some outliers there where there was a little bit more scrutiny than, than others, but by far and away, and I know that multifamily investors who are going through tough times don't like to hear this, but this is true, statistically speaking, multifamily collected over 90% of their rents on average across the country. And our experience was the same way. I will add that it's a fascinating phenomenon this period of time where we had an eviction moratorium. I've never, at least that I can recall that I've studied, I've never seen a similar situation in yeah. history. You know, mm -hmm. every recessionary economy from 1929 till now typically lasts between seven and 10 years. And here we are with this 13 years of artificial interest rate deflation and we walk into this pandemic set of circumstances, it should have been a Molotov cocktail to blow everything up if it was going to. And it hasn't. And now we're starting to see even the prediction services and Moody's and everybody else, especially the single family market, talk about increasing prices next year. Well, if you're a multifamily owner and you're talking about increasing prices, the underlying assumption is rental rates are going to go up, not down. Absolutely. Absolutely. And they have been going up even during COVID, which was really interesting. So you have Tenants that could not pay and tenants, like you mentioned, that were paying, but maybe later. So it took a little bit more time to get to the same 90, 95% collection rate. But at the same time, across the board, you know, in many markets, rents were still going up. Maybe there was a little bit in the first, I would say between March and June, maybe July. In some markets, rents have gone down. But if you look across the board, Rents have been going up. And part of it is, I believe, also a function of the demand because home prices went up. So fewer and fewer tenants can actually leave their apartment complex and go buy a house. And so because homeownership became a little bit less, you know, reasonable or attainable for many couples. So that only increased the demand for multifamily, not to mention the move from core markets to secondary and tertiary markets, because now people can work remotely. So a lot of people moved, you know, to Miami is kind of in between, you know, it's kind of a core market, but they moved to, to Florida, they moved to Georgia, they moved to Charlotte, to other places where cost of living is lower. And that also created an increased demand, at least where we own assets, which was great for us. Mm -hmm. It's an interesting phenomenon. It really is. And I'll tell you that the work from home you know, trend, which we know is here to stay, at least on some level, 
we thought was going to have people move to all these tertiary markets and it was going to spread out the economy and it was going to levelize rents. Well, what happened? People moved out of New York briefly. And then now there's an influx back into New York. Home prices, yeah. like you noted, are also rising. But here's a shocking thing that, so I own a real estate brokerage as well, right? And one of the things that we've noticed is that the entry price to buying a home isn't what it used to be. You still need three to 20% down, depending on how you're ever going to buy your home. But if people are bidding and driving up these prices over market, you now have to pay the difference between the purchase price and the yep. appraised value because your lender is going to go on the lower of the two. So your three percent or twenty percent, it just increased significantly because you have to have cash, cash out of pocket for the difference. So a lot of people who thought they were going to buy when the market got hot and it continues to be hot today, and now you have a, you know all these demands on the supply chain that are you know cost of woods going up. You look at yourself and you go, I'm going to rent. And if I'm going to rent, I'm going to rent a nicer place because I should be a home buyer. And there's almost like this psychological thing going yeah. on where it's helping to facilitate this increase in rental prices. If you have a newly renovated property or property that's been well or nicely upgraded right now, you can rent that thing out for a significantly more money than you could just a year ago. And I know the economists freak out because I use words like inflation, but it's a real thing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we see it on our portfolios as well. It's actually very surprising. And, you know, at some point the music is going to stop. But for now, I think for the next 12 to 24 months, rising rents are still going to continue. Let's talk a little bit about the process of risk mitigation. So we mentioned, you know, interest rates for rising, and I think it's, you know, it's reasonable to see how this trend is going to continue in the next year or so. When it comes to the process part of rising interest rates, how can investors protect themselves and their investments from that phenomenon? So what should investors do? What actions should they take in order to protect themselves from having a, and you know, buying a single-family home or or a multifamily investment, and having the interest rates, the increase in interest rate, impact their returns. So the easiest one is lowest hanging fruit, and I know that there are a lot of risk profiles out there. But for me, if you're a risk adverse person, I tend to go with the mindset that every piece of real estate that I buy needs to be cash flowing when I buy it right? With the financing that's in place. Now, if you're a flipper or you're somebody with, you know, buying with an equity upside play, I can appreciate and respect all that. But going into this uncharted, unprecedented environment, I'm personally not willing to take the risk of an upside rental potential. And I'll tell you right now, from not only a banking perspective, but also from an investor's perspective, if I take a property and I bring it to market right now, right? And it's fully renovated and the whole thing leases out at full market rents. The only thing I have now is downside risk. Whereas if I bought a seasoned property with a little bit of lower than the market rents, that's still cash flowing positive, and I can bring that up a little bit higher over time, that has less inherent risk. And I know you're thinking, Chris, you could have the maximum possible cash flow now. You know, what are you doing? Well, you have to understand that there's a difference between, you know, increasing the value in the property from a net worth standpoint or an equity standpoint and increasing your cash flow over time. I know that real estate investors have a tendency to look at their net worth on paper and think that that's a, that's a huge number. But really, at the end of the day, your buying power, your ability to be in this market and continue investing is driven off of your cash flow. So everything I look at is with the lens of cash flow perspective. So in this particular economy, I'm not taking the risk of buying properties that aren't going to cash flow and, and give me something back. So if I'm buying a property, if it's a single family property, it's got to be cash flow positive on day one. 
look at the interest rate environment, right? You're at historic interest rate lows. You have to, as you noted earlier, this ride's going to stop. Rates are going to go up. If they do go up, you have to be comfortable with your financing in place right now, at least for the foreseeable future in the next couple of years. So not planning ahead strategically like that, and you let, for example, on a hybrid loan that comes due in a year or two, you might be in a vastly different set of circumstances for financing then, and that could really impact your cash flow. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a very, very, very good point. Understanding, you know, that it's actually very prudent to buy an asset that is cash flowing from day one. And that's the rule that I live by. So even if we cannot, it's the worst case scenario, we cannot renovate and push rents. And even if expenses go, you know, a bit higher, maybe I'm not hitting the projected returns of six, seven, eight percent, but well, today it's more closer to 6% than 8% cash on cash. That's more challenging to get. So I don't want you know investors to think that that's what we're getting on every deal now because the landscape has changed. But even in that dark scenario, am I still cash flowing? So maybe I'm not making 6%, maybe I'm making 5 or 4 but I'm still cash flowing. I'm still making a profit. In my opinion, that would make an investment a safer and an investment that basically is reasonable to make. We are looking at value add and I'm sure you know you as well because that's what you basically described that even without it we're cash flowing and then the cash flow increases once we are able to put some money, renovate the units, improve the exterior, take care of deferred maintenance and push rents. But even if you cannot do it, you're still profitable. And many investments don't fall into that rule. Many investment, and that's why you see a lot of investors overbid and pay more than they should have because they're banking on the rent increases that may or may not be there. Such a dangerous thing to do too. And it's funny because the real estate business, with no disrespect to anybody who's in the business, it's such a low barrier to entry, right? Yeah. You don't even need a real estate license if you're going to go start investing. You can just go invest. And despite how we all feel when we first buy our first property, getting financing is not super, super difficult. It's just, you know, how much, you know, do you have to put down and how yeah. difficult, you know, is it going to be to get a rate that you find desirable, but financing is out there, particularly in this market. It's astonishing how easy, I mean, there's hard money lenders out there that are giving away more than hundred percent. That's a very risky proposition yeah. for a real estate investor who's going into it with exactly the mindset that you noted this is not the economy to play wild, you know, risks and take those chances. Value add is great. But like you mentioned, how many people have the level of discipline to sit down, find investments, sift through ones and go, I'm going to pass on this one because it's not yeah. cash flow positive. And there's variables there. I mean, not everyone's going to have a level of expertise that you do, the number of properties you have under management and, and not everybody's going to understand, you know, what it takes to actually bring that value in. Right now, if you would, I just did a project on one of my properties recently and I, we waited a year. And, you know, shame on me. I shouldn't have waited a year. I did it back then just because I, frankly, I was just busy with other things. And the cost of lumber has driven the pro overall cost of the project up 30, almost 40%. Insane. And that, that is not something we could have contemplated a year ago when we decided to wait. And if we were waiting on a value add project for that, that, that could tremendously impact the bottom line. It could make it economically infeasible. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. By the way, lumber costs are starting to go down, but yeah, it's still higher than it was. And, and that kind of threw our calculation a bit because we had to recalculate the CapEx costs and, and understand what we need to do because we did not budget for a 30 to 40% increase in materials when it comes to renovating the units. And then what do you do? How do you adjust it so you're still within your budget? So all these fun things when you run an investment. 
I want to talk a little bit about the strategy of risk assessment. And we talked about it a little bit, but how do you balance between the need to take a risk? And there's always a need to do so with any investment, because if you don't want to take any risk whatsoever, then you will never invest. There's always an inherent risk in any investment. But how do you balance between that and the need to be conservative? And one of the things you mentioned earlier is to be cash flow from day one. But how do you manage that strategy and understand what is the the fine line, the balancing act between the two? Yeah, you know, and that that question is one that I repeatedly like kind of look, do an introspective look at myself and ask that question because your risk profile will change over time as you get more experience, as you become more financially affluent and educated, you know. I think a lot of people think that you jump into the real estate game, you buy a property and it's super stressful. And the more properties you buy, it becomes less stressful. Well, there's always a level of risk and stress in every single yep. real estate or any, any investment that you make, whether you're buying a real estate investment trust, you know, as your choice of option, or you're buying a traditional piece of real estate, there's always that big question mark, that unknown. And what I'll tell most people is it starts with two things. One education, you need to understand what the asset class is that you're investing in. If you have unreasonable expectations for the asset class, I've typically found that comes from a lack of education. And I'm not talking about going online and listening to a guru tell you about all the things that he or she can do. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about actually looking at someone's financial statements, looking at the business, understanding, get a real estate license. Even if you never plan on selling a piece of real estate in your life, the education for an investor is priceless. Real estate principles, real estate appraisal, these things are valuable. And the second thing I tell people to, to really help with your risk is that relationships are the truest form of currency, right? Who you know and who can help you and who has a vested interest in helping you find those answers is so tremendously valuable. And one of the things that I've, I'm not saying you need to invest in a master class or a mentor. What I'm really saying is, is you need to spend the time to get to know people in the space so that you can continue to, to feel through those thoughts in that logical process with other people. Because there's plenty of times I've been on the fence about making an investment, a strategic decision, you know, my own piece of real estate or buying a piece of real estate just recently. I was looking at buying a single family residence in the Midwest in Oklahoma. My sister who's out there is a real estate agent and my property manager. And we ping three or four people in the area just to get you know some other insight and some more information about how they feel. Because if I was arrogant enough to believe that I knew everything about that market or that I knew the fundamentals of real estate, then I may have missed several key issues which bring value to that property. Now, in this case, it wound up working in my favor, but it doesn't always work that way. So Definitely educate yourself and get to know people in the space because that's how you're going to take care of the risk long term. That's a great advice. I love it. Well, we have arrived to the last part of our conversation, which is the lightning round questions. Unless you have anything else that you wanted to add before we get to that last part, just to kind of bring us home. You know, the one thing I'll tell most people who listen is that, you know, whether you're a first time investor or you're an investor who's invested for the last several decades and years, you know, this business is in a very unique time. It's mm-hmm. such a special period of time that we're in because nothing like this has ever happened before. Right. So, you know, if anyone's feeling kind of weary or they're looking at things and they feel confident or they feel, you know, insecure in some way, you know, we all do. It's an interesting time. It's unique, but that's what makes this business so fun. Yeah. All right. Well, Chris, lightning round questions. So question number one is what's your favorite hobby? And I'm sure you have a lot because you're in a, a certain state in, within the U.S. that has a lot to offer. So what is it? 
you know, it's going to sound super cliche, but you know, <laughs> I, I work a lot. So we have a two-year-old son, my wife and I, and he mm -hmm. is kind of my whole world. Recently, the oh. thing that we've been doing a lot is we blow up water balloons and we chase each other around in the sun, throwing them at each other. And he takes particular joy in getting me soaked <laughs> three or four days a week. And that has become my hobby is just making that little guy smile. That's a very unique hobby. I, haven't, I can't say that I have heard that one before. Well, what's the one thing that people don't know about you besides the fact that you like to get soaking wet by your two-year-old son? I'm insanely competitive. I like mm -hmm. secret. I mean, I won't go to someone's face and, and challenge them directly. But, you know, if you tell me I can't do something, I'm going to find a way to win. And I'm not saying I'm going to make it, you know, a big public deal. But don't tell me something's not possible because I will go get it. I love it. All right. What you wish that you had known when you first started investing in real estate? When you're in your early 20s and your early 30s, you can take those risks and have very, very little repercussions that are life ending, right? You don't have a family, mm -hmm. you don't have children. Mm -hmm. Take risks earlier in your life, earlier in your career, because as you get older, you naturally become a little bit more risk avoidant because you're building wealth and success for other people now. It's more than just yourself. And you have employees, you have an enterprise, you have other right. things going on. So take bigger and greater risk when you're younger. That's probably what Awesome. And what's your number one advice, Chris, for our listeners that want to scale and grow their real estate portfolio in 2021? You know, I would say that there's going to be a lot of negative media coverage as it relates to things that are happening in the economy. You're going to see inflation. You're going to see all these things that are going to come upon us. My honest answer is don't stop. Don't stop buying. People are going to tell you this is a terrible time to buy. You're going to buy now. Prices are high. If you listen to what we talked about in this conversation, it's cash flowing. If the property's making money on day one, okay, that's still positive cash flow. Every property you add to your portfolio, even if it's a dollar in profit over time, is still building your balance sheet, building your cash flow, and making you a stronger, savvier real estate investor. Don't stop. Believe in yourself. Be disciplined, and you'll be okay. All right, Chris, where can people find you if they want to reach out and read about you, get in touch? How can they do that? I'm surprisingly readily accessible. We've started a <laughs> little bit of a social media campaign. You can find me on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, also YouTube as well to a lesser extent, and obviously LinkedIn where all of us professionals go. The username's the same on all the platforms. It's at my first name and my last name, Chris Nahibi. It's N-A-G-H-I-B-I. Give me a shout. I'm always there. All right, Chris, thank you so much for being here on the show today. I had a blast. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. I did too. It was fun. All right, guys, that's it for today. Be bold, be great. Keep moving forward and I'll see you on the next episode. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.